Welcome back to Vermont Viewpoint on WDEV. I'm Brad Wright. Uh, we're going to talk about sports gambling, which starts in a couple of days. Uh, Wendy Knight is the commissioner of the Department of Liquor and Lottery. Uh, but she, soon she will be uh, over the overseer of Vermont sports gambling. Um, that is quite an addition to her portfolio as commissioner of a regulatory agency in this very small state. Uh, commissioner Knight, welcome. Thank you very much, Brad. Happy to be with you. Well, we're ha- very happy to have you. Um, for folks listening, uh, you know, it's hard, I would have thought, to miss all of the hype surrounding the beginning of sports gambling in Vermont. If you watch sports at all, if you watch a football game or a hockey game or basketball on TV, you can't miss it. And yet, evidently, a lot of people are missing it. Um uh, we wanted to get to how we got here with sports gambling, but uh, I, I did, uh, Commissioner, want to ask you first, what are you expecting on opening day? Well, uh, we're expecting a successful launch. It's online sports wagering, uh, and so the operators are ready uh, to accept uh, online sports wagering from their subscribers, their the players, uh, and that will start at midnight uh, tomorrow night. So it's uh, technically January 11th, and uh, we've created our game gaming day is it's from midnight to midnight, and so that's why we're starting at um, midnight. So any sports fans out there interested in online sports wagering will be able to start placing bets as of midnight uh, on the 11th. Okay. Um, the mission statement of the Vermont Department of Liquor and Lottery says it provides a regulatory framework of licensing, compliance, enforcement, and education for responsible sale and consumption of alcohol, tobacco, and gaming entertainment. So we're looking at this as entertainment in a sense. Um, and it goes on to say ensuring public safety and contributing 100% of profits to Vermont communities through the general and education funds. Um, what do you expect or what has the, the, the previous studies of, of uh, gam- sports gambling in this state uh, tell you about uh, what kind of revenue the state might get? So we looked at the operator uh, information that they were required to submit with the bid uh, as part of the competitive bid process. And based on that information on their market analysis and what they expect that the Vermont market will be, we're probably looking for the first full year of operations to be 7 to $8 million for the state. And that's based on the revenue share that we have in place with the operators. It's how people uh, gamble on sports has been a lot of under the radar stuff prior to this week. Um, isn't that right? I mean, it's, I mean, I used to run a couple of, uh, uh, football pools in offices that I worked in because I was interested in it at that level. Um, and there is some, uh, demographic information indicating that about 19% of U.S. adults bet on sports in office pools um, and that kind of uh, under-the-radar thing. Um, do you think that – do the numbers, are they about right for Vermont? Do you think that that's the way it's going to shake out? 
Yeah, I think that what we have seen uh, is that uh, you indicate, obviously, that it's not legal right now to, to wager on sports online or, or any, you know, in, in retail locations either. Vermont doesn't have any casinos or racetracks. And so prior to uh, tomorrow night, how people have been engaging in online sports wagering is either going across state lines in wagering in states that allow it, for example, New York and Massachusetts and, and New Hampshire, we're surrounded by states that allow online sports wagering, or they bet um, with these bookies, which are um, often um, uh, tied to organized crime, or these offshore, you know, illicit sites, which isn't safe. So I think one of the important aspects of regulating online sports wagering is to put those consumer protections and those safeguards in place for Vermonters that are interested in participating in this activity. If you would like to ask a question about uh, sports gambling or sports online sports betting uh, in Vermont, uh, we invite you to give us a call. The number is 802-244-1777. That's 802 802- Two four four one seven seven seven. Obviously, the uh, the online aspect of this type of uh, sports betting is going to have to be done uh, with credit cards. Am I right about that? No, that's not true. Actually, okay. the law does not permit the use of credit cards to fund the player accounts. So, so how would how would use- it work? Well, there's a, a couple of different mechanisms. They would use uh, debit cards are permissible. Debit cards. Okay. Right. All right. So we're not allowing credit cards, and that was one of the safeguards that we put into place so that people don't go into debt. But some of the problems with online sports wagering, if, it's, if there are no safeguards, is that what happens is players go into debt, and then – as a result of going into debt, there's a there's a higher rate of um, suicide or suicide ideation from being in debt. Wow, you know it's that's really interesting. Um, it makes perfect sense, and yet I never even occurred to me. Um, let's talk a little bit about how we got here. Um, we could start with the Supreme Court uh, legalizing sports betting, online sports betting, back in 2018, leaving it up to the states to determine how much or how little to get involved. Can you talk a little bit about what the conversations were like in um, in getting this uh, set up and what decisions had to be made about what to allow and what not to allow? Sure. Um, so uh, I, uh, the governor, of course, has been advocating for the legalization of online sports waging for a number of years. When I came in uh, as the commissioner of the Department of Liquor and Lottery, um, I began those conversations in with the legislature in April of tw- that session, 2022. Um, and at the time, it looked like there was some momentum. Uh, some momentum. Um, Senator Six- Dick Sears has been advocating for the legalization of sports wagering, and uh, it was uh, a bill introduced in the Senate Economic Development. Um, but what happened is they we sort of ran out of time, um, you know, with the part-time legislature, and so they created a sports wagering study committee. And that was to take place that fall. I ended up chairing um, that committee. It had representatives of the legislature, the administration, and the Secretary of State's office. And we uh, looked at the sports wagering 
study that the legislature uh, had created over the last couple of years prior to that. It was a very in-depth study, and we heard from some experts, and we created the Sports Wagering Study Committee report that kind of laid out the um, framework for our recommendations uh, in terms of what sports wagering would look like. And I think the ultimately when the House government operations introduced a bill, Representative Matt Byron had introduced that a lot. He was on the study committee as well. The bill took its shape from that um, sports wagering study report. And um, that's where the momentum came from. And we had a number of discussions uh, about responsible gaming. And I think it was very clear to everybody that we just needed to understand the potential risk and, um, you know, figure out how to mitigate them, but that it was really important um, to create those safeguards and to actually regulate this activity. Um, as I had mentioned earlier, prior to this, there were no consumer protections for people that were betting with uh, bookies associated with organized crime or offshore um, accounts. Right. Um do you uh what do you worry about most um uh with with this i mean obviously you know gambling addiction is is out there there are a lot of people who uh who gamble who probably shouldn't um but what do you what do you worry about most with with this mm, well right now i'm um just wanting to ensure that we have a successful launch at midnight, right? So sure. I, I want, I'd like us to, the, I mean, the operators are all set. We've had, um, you know, we're in constant contact with the operators right now. Um, I worry less about the responsible gaming and the, and, and the problem gambling because I feel like we have such strong safeguards. Um, you say what, what I worry about. This is it's unknown to us in Vermont, online sports wagering. But it's not unknown to the operators. So we're, you know, what the 36th state, we're one of the last. And so the operators have a long history of launches. Um, and they're very, you know, they're very good at what they do. And that includes the responsible gaming. But I think I worry less about the responsible gaming because I think that the legislature and the administration, we have been so intentional about creating um those safeguards and to make this as, as, as safe and enjoyable as possible. Uh, Commissioner, did you look at how other states are doing this and was that educational at all for you? Yes, absolutely. Not only did the Sports Wagering Study Committee look at other states and, and spoke to other states, but we, the department, have been in constant communication with the other states um, as we sort of, you know, navigate this and they've been incredibly helpful. And I think that's one of the benefits of being one of the last states to legalize it is because you have a whole um, track record of, of what's worked and what's not worked, right? So we were able to learn those, um, apply those lessons as we were setting this up. All right. So you, so you don't feel like we're entering the Wild West here? God, no. <laughs> <laughs> no, not at all. We're, you know, like I said, there's yeah. over, third, what, 36 states that have done this. The operators are very experienced. Um, and just because we're one of the last ones doesn't mean it's, it's a new, you know, it's a new, it's a new game for Vermonters. It's, it's a new opportunity for Vermonters, especially for, um, you know, those that are sports enthusiasts. It also provides an opportunity for the millions of visitors that come to Vermont that are interested in um, sports wagering and haven't been able to engage in it. Hmm. Uh, what organizations have you chosen to facilitate online sports betting? 
So the companies uh, that we selected are um, Fanatics, FanDuel, and DraftKings. Are those the three big ones uh, in in the world in this world of uh, online sports betting? Uh, yeah, I mean, I haven't looked recently, but I know FanDuel and DraftKings, uh, I think, vie for, you know, number one uh, in the country. Um, I don't know what their their latest, um, you know, player enrollment is and, and their, their revenue. And Fanatics is, a, is definitely an up-and-coming um, operator that we are excited about. Um, I read uh... – uh, a Pew Research article about online sports um, sports betting, and one of the, some of the statistics were surprising. For example, now this is about you know Americans overall, not just Vermont, obviously, but overall, it said 56% of adults say they have read or heard a lot or little about the fact that sports betting is now legal in much of the country. 44% say they hadn't read or heard anything. Does that surprise you? I don't think so, no, because I think that online sports wagering is really uh, geared for sports fans, right? A number of the betting takes place during the game. So if you don't watch professional sports or if you don't engage in sports, then you might might not necessarily be interested in um, wagering. It's not like going to bet in a casino, right, or going to bet into a a horse race uh, track where it tends to be more of a cross-section of people. I think that online sports wagering is really geared for sports enthusiasts. Right. So the sports you can watch on TV, which primarily are football, hockey, basketball, baseball, right? Yeah, I mean, there's a whole. Uh, we have an extensive sports wagering catalog, and people can bet on, you know, all kinds of international sports. But you definitely, um, as you indicated, you saw a lot of advertising on the, the this weekend's and last weekend's um, sporting events um, on TV. Yeah, um, yeah. One of one of the uh, one of the, I mean, is is there something? That is so um, obscure out there in betting that uh, that you would be worried about people betting on it, or or is it once once the once the gate is open, you know that's the end as far as you're concerned. Um, not quite sure I understand your question, but I can I can say that the the catalog that we developed um, these are leagues, these are sporting events in um, leagues that have a governing body. So the integrity of the game uh, is important, and that's why we allow sports wagering on events that that have that you know that have sort of earned a kind of a thumbs up by U.S. integrity, and that have a governing body that are looking at uh, the competition and the integrity of it. We have, I mean, this is you know doesn't really involve Vermont, but we have seen issues in the past where, like for uh, you know a number of years ago, there was a point shaving scandal in college basketball, and then mm-hmm. uh, and then there was uh, an NBA official who was found to be um, uh, uh, slanting some of his some of his uh, calls on the floor uh, because uh, because he was involved in gambling at some level. Uh, there are a lot of folks who are okay with the concept of betting uh, online sports betting, but worry about its effect on sports itself. Yeah, I, 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 I hear your point. Um, and I think that that's why we rely on the leagues and the governing bodies um, to the extent we can in terms of, um, uh, you know, uh, having those sports wagering catalogs um, 
both sporting events in our sports wagering catalog. Right. Um, but you raise the point about sports in general, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. That, that's existed for decades. Right. And, there, and and I'm sure that I was just scratching the surface there in terms of, uh, you know, gambling's influence on um, – and but, of course, it's, you know, also limited to organi- – uh, associated with organized crime, which, you know, we want not to have happen. Um, do you think that um, the uh, introduction of online sports betting – could influence um, other forms of gambling. Does it make it easier to bring a casino to Vermont, or does it does it make it uh, easier for horse racing and dog racing that is uh, present in other states to uh, to come to Vermont? I don't think that uh, one necessarily leads to the other, right? So the sports wagering study committee had talked about whether or not um, we would be recommending uh, a retail network, and that would be, you know, a bricks-and-mortar um, operation for sports wagering, and, you know, it was determined that that would be something to look at, but that it was something we weren't recommending right away. When you get into uh, a retail bricks-and-mortar operation, you require a lot more um, compliance um, and enforcement, and it's the infrastructure is very costly. We obviously don't have casinos. We don't have horse racing. Uh, we don't have, you know, betting facilities. So I, 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 I don't know uh, that, that just because we're – regulating online sports wagering that that's going to necessarily lead to retail networks. I think that they're very different um, systems and operations. Yeah. And I suppose if, if people really want to, they can just go to Saratoga or whatever, right? If it's not that far away. Um, we do have a, well, we had a listener call apparently uh, that went away. Um, if, uh, if folks, if you have a question about, um, Online sports betting, how it's going to work, when it starts, all of that. We would uh, appreciate your phone call. We'd love to have you. Um, and, uh, uh, Commissioner, um, do you believe that um, there is room for growth in this in terms of the uh, tax revenue that uh, the state would get uh, beyond the first year? Yeah, based on the information that we received from the operators, uh, they expect in maturity, which is five years out, um, that the um, market in Vermont could be up to a $50 million um, market. And based on the revenue shares that we have in place, that could mean anywhere from 15 to $18 million in revenue uh, that online sports wagering would bring to the state, which is much needed income, as we know. Uh, we're hearing about, you know, uh, the tight budgets. Uh, last year, the legislature passed a 13% budget, a budget that was a 13% increase, and we've seen the the reports of uh, property taxes going up by uh, as much as 18%. So we could certainly use that revenue. Yeah, I would uh, I would say. And, and I suppose the feeling would be that would have a that would hold a lot of water is the fact that well look if people are going to gamble anyway if they're going to bet online for on sports then the state may as well get a cut of that uh, it makes Absolutely. It, I mean, it, it does make a lot of sense on a lot of issues of course you worry about those folks who uh would get into trouble with gambling addiction um 
but, you know, that's going to happen no matter what. Um, and I suppose that uh, you're you're facing a similar issue with liquor sales, right? I mean, uh, you um, regulate the uh, sale of liquor, whether it is at a liquor store or at a bar, um, and um, we know that alcohol isn't the greatest thing for people, but we hope that people use it in moderation and are careful. Um, is it the same thing, I suppose, getting into that? Uh, so, obviously, as a control state in Vermont, we uh, sell and distribute distilled spirits. So the only way you're able to buy distilled spirits is at an 802 spirit store. And absolutely, we regulate the sale and distribution uh, and the consumption of all kinds of spirits. So what we want is we want responsible consumption. And that's when you read in our mission statement, we have a dual mission. One, we're uh, in a department that sells products, right? We sell lottery tickets, we sell alcohol, and now we are allowing online sports wagering. So we, we uh, have part of our mission is to, um, generate revenue to the state, and then the other part of our mission is to is public safety, and that's to do do things responsibly, and that's why we're always promoting responsible play in terms of uh, Vermont Lottery, and then responsible consumption in terms of alcohol. So it's definitely a balance and a and a dual mission that that we um, all of us at the department really sort of internalize. We just have about a minute or so left, but I did want to ask you as long as we had, um, uh, or a couple of minutes, I guess we have left. Uh, I did want to ask you about how liquor sales are doing, what they contribute to the state's tax coffers and, um, and, as, and lottery too, because lottery is, um, certainly a form of, uh, of gambling, um, at a, at a fairly low level. Um, how, how are we doing tax wise with, uh, with those things? Yep. So liquor sales, we generate um, uh, uh, close to $30 million a year uh, annually, uh, and that goes to the general fund. And then the Vermont lottery goes to the education fund, and that's about $30, $30 million uh, annually as well. Um, lottery uh, sales are trending up right now. We had a um, we have a new vendor. We uh, have a, a conversion last fall, so we switched to a new vendor, which is how lottery systems work. You contract with a international vendor, and so those sales are trending up. And liquor sales are trending down actually, and that's happening across the board nationally, not just in Vermont. Uh, and so we're seeing you know one to two percent uh, decline in liquor sales. Partly it was because during the pandemic. There were sales were up, um, and now I think we're we're looking at more of a of a sort of traditional kind of trend. Um, also, people are drinking less alcohol. There is a, a, a trend towards non-alcoholic and low-alcoholic beverages. The younger generation, you know, that legal drinking age, younger adult population, they are, you know, a lot of, a lot more of them are not drinking or abstaining. Um, so we're seeing that as an interesting pattern that people are uh, consuming less alcohol, which means if it continues that way, uh, we can expect to have less money go to the general fund as a result of liquor sales in Vermont. Yeah, um, that's, uh, that is, uh, probably a good sign in, in, in one way. Um, and if, 
there is less in less in liquor sales. There may be less in terms of accidents and hospitalizations and that kind of thing. So, um, yeah, I would say that probably is a pretty cool thing. So we will be right back. Uh, this is Ramad Viewpoint on WDEV. Welcome back to Vermont Viewpoint on WDEV. I'm Brad Wright. I have to tell you that um, I am one of those people who almost never watches the award shows. But I knew I was going to be speaking with our next guest, Margot Harrison, of Seven Days. And so I did make a point of tuning in to the Golden Globes presentation on CBS Sunday night. Um uh, Margot is the associate editor and movie reviewer for Seven Days. Margot, welcome back to Vermont Viewpoint. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. Well, it was great. It's great to have you. Um, Margot, we mentioned this. Uh, we conversed by email about this very briefly. Uh, I, I have to tell you that the opening monologue by Joe Coy, a comedian that previously I had never heard of, was pretty rough. Um, Nobody oh, no. got slapped that I could see, but maybe someone should have been <laughs> because, because, uh, oh boy, that was, that was tough. That was tough to watch. That guy was sweating bullets about 30 seconds into his act. And, um, I mean, he was barking at the, uh, audience there, uh, because they weren't laughing at some not very funny jokes. Uh, I, I, <laughs> Um, it, it was, it was, it was, ooh, it was, it was just tough. In fact, honestly, uh, even it, I did watch a little bit more. Um, and, uh, uh, the, um, the best performance by an actress in a supporting role in a motion picture. Um, this was the first award given out. Uh, it was, uh, uh, Divine Joy Randolph from The Holdovers. Um, I, I haven't seen that movie yet, so I, um, I do want to, cause I, cause it was, uh, you reviewed it and it was, and, and seemed to like it, um, largely. Yeah. Um, uh, that outfit, um, I don't want to be too critical, uh, but wow, um, uh, just about falling out of it. And <laughs> it's just, you know, I was waiting for a wardrobe malfunction to happen there and I, wasn't oh, no. something I was looking forward to. So, oh boy, <laughs> oh, just just really rough stuff. Um, but wow. um, uh, any, anyway, uh, I, I um, but we should we should get into uh, some of the movies that uh, you've seen and the ones you like and don't like. Um, uh, you s- mentioned that uh, you've seen Poor Things, which was indeed uh, the Golden Globe winner. Um, let, let's talk about that one. Yeah, it won for musical or comedy, and I'm kind of surprised by that because this movie is pretty out there. It's um, I, somebody on on uh, the, the on X, the former Twitter, called it Barbie for deranged people, and I think that was pretty accurate. <laughs> <laughs> I mean this this is a this is a movie um, about a it's set in the in Victorian England, and it's about a woman with with the brain of a child, literally, because a, a Frankenstein mad science Frankenstein type mad scientist worked on her, 
Um, and she's been put together from different parts and she kind of goes on a voyage of self-discovery that is very R-rated. This is not a movie I would recommend to everyone. Oh, wow. 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 (laughs) Um, uh, did you like it? I did. I thought it was brilliant. I mean, the screenplay is just hilarious. There's a reason that, that it won for musical or comedy because it is very funny. I think if you liked the movie The Favorite, you might like this because it's the same screenwriter and the same type of humor. Um, but it just has a lot of funny lines. The way that this woman, played by Emma Stone, expresses herself is totally unique and often hilarious. The visuals are brilliant, too. It's just an amazing movie to look at. Um, and I, I think a lot of people are arguing about, like, what does it all mean? But it's it's definitely quite an experience. Huh. Um, uh, that's one I'm going to – I have not seen that one. In fact, I haven't seen anything since Napoleon, unfortunately. Um, it's it's a little hard to uh, for me to get out to movies on a regular basis, even though I love them. Um, and I – uh, really missed going to the movies during the pandemic, uh, cause that was, that was tough. Do you think, um, uh, the movie theaters are, 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 are returning in numbers, uh, or attracting numbers enough to, uh, to, to keep going? Or are we going to see more, more permanent closures, do you think? I don't really know. I mean, I know they had a huge success with the Taylor Swift movie and um, maybe with the Beyonce movie, too. I'm, you know, I'm not sure where they are now. I don't think we had any huge hits over the holidays. I don't, Aquaman, I think, was not a huge hit. The Color Purple did well, did well. Um, So I, I hope they stick around especially our local theaters. I mean, it was really sad when the Palace Nine closed in, in South Burlington. Yeah, yeah, because that happened uh, fairly recently, right? And um, uh, I suppose yeah, that November. Gives, uh, I suppose that gives a better chance for the other theaters in the area to, to pick up the slack. But, um, but you worry about it when you start seeing movie theaters close. Yeah, definitely, especially locally owned theaters like ours. And I think they're really valuable to the community. Something like the Savoy Theater in Montpelier, it's really small, and it's often, you know, it's kind of struggling to find an audience. But I hope more people will start coming out, although I completely understand the concerns that might keep us inside. Yeah, yeah, and we're hearing, you know, uh, uh, COVID numbers uh, going up again on some um, it's not what it was. It's not a, it's not a pandemic, but COVID hasn't gone away. And so for, you know, for some people, that's gonna, gonna be an issue, I guess. Um, so, uh, poor things you would recommend? I would, but I would say, um, read, read about it to make sure that it's for you because this movie will definitely not be for some people. Um, it's, there's a lot, there's a lot of, shall we say, sexual activity in it on screen. Okay. Um, so, you <laughs> okay. know, read, read all the warnings about it. <laughs> all right. All right. Now, um, uh, Barbie was, uh, at the Golden Globes was competing for best musical comedy motion picture award. They lost out to poor things. Succession was nominated for and won best television drama. Um, it stars Kieran Culkin, Sarah Snook, Matthew McFadden, 
uh, also took home acting awards for their, uh, they also took home acting, uh, awards for their role in this, uh, very acclaimed series, which is on HBO. Have, have you seen it? I mean, this is quite a thing. Um, I, I, know I, that I'm, I'm like the one person out there who has not seen Succession yet. Uh, oh, there's two of us, at least. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but, um, congratulations to them because it was a terrific, um, it's been a terrific, uh, series um and uh yeah and and I hear it's great yeah yeah and and i get now that it's out there i i you know if uh if it ends up on netflix i, I guess uh, i'll i would be hard pressed to not at least give it a shot um would you be uh guessing um maybe online gambling perhaps that uh, maybe there's going to be a barbie too what do you think I would not be amazed. <laughs> I mean, there's definitely an audience for that. Yeah, there there sure is. Um uh this movie uh was uh, really about as is it how I mean, did you watch it? Have you seen it? Barbie? Yeah. Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah. Does it is there something there for girls and women? That isn't there for for boys and men in in uh, or anybody else uh, in 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 it. I mean, is this really a um, uh, a a is, are girls and women the target for this for this film? Yeah, I mean, I would say so. But it is a comedy, and there's a lot of humor that I think anyone could appreciate. Um, it, it's it's a well written comedy. Um, I mean. It, it's true that it helps if you were someone who played with Barbies as a child, it, because then you can kind of relate a little bit more. You understand what those dolls meant to you, how important they were. Yeah. Um, and you can maybe get more of the jokes, like recognizing the old Barbies or, you know, the, the weird Barbie who has her hair, her, her hair all chopped off. You know, every girl had a Barbie like that, you know. Right, right. Um, and, uh, um, I remember, uh, Stephen Wright had a, had a pretty funny line, uh, about Barbie. Um, if Barbie is so popular, why do you have to buy her friends? <laughs> that's true. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, well, that, that's it's, the irony. Yeah, it is. Um, and of course, um, the accessories, I mean, if you walk, you know, anytime you walked in as a kid, if you walked into a toy store, even as a, even, you know, as a boy, you walk in and you were overwhelmed with all the Barbie stuff, the car, the house. Um, it was pretty, it was pretty amazing. And so to, 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 so, and it looks like they did a pretty good job of capturing that in the film, even though I have yet to see it. Yeah. Oh, definitely. And I mean, the character of Ken is maybe the most interesting character in the movie. Not to say the character of Barbie isn't interesting, but there, this male character of Ken, he really goes on a journey. Um, it's kind of it's 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 pretty funny, and Ryan Gosling gives an amazing performance. He's just hilarious in this role. Yeah, he was nominated uh, for a Golden Globe uh, along with uh, Robert De Niro of Killers of the Flower Moon, Charles Melton of May December, um, and and both Willem Dafoe and Mark Ruffalo uh, for Poor Things. Um, uh, but the winner was Robert Downey Jr. of Oppenheimer fame. Um, uh, were you surprised? 
Not really, because, well, Robert Downey Jr., I mean, he he really gave an amazing performance in that movie. I think Oppenheimer is three hours long, and it has a subplot kind of framing it involving some um, congressional hearings, and he's the center of that. And it all kind of comes together at the end, and I think he, he, he did a great job in that role, so... It makes sense to me. Yeah. Okay. All right. Um, I think that uh, Oppenheimer is another one that I need to see. Um, I I know that uh, Robert Oppenheimer was in charge of the Manhattan Project that uh, gave the world the first working uh, nuclear weapon. And um, uh, understanding uh, that is a – the implications of that, of – what the, a, a weapon that has that powerful could do is uh, would really weigh heavily on the entire team, not just Oppenheimer, and um, and we we have uh, and it trails right back to us in the present day, and everybody, I think, worries about what has been let loose on on the world. Um, to yeah. This point. Yeah. Uh, Marco, uh, Margo, I, I, um, uh, I know that you've seen Maestro. Um, uh, yeah. Brad, Bradley Cooper is getting a whole lot of top roles. Um, he is, um, a real box office attraction. I just don't think there's any question about it. Um, can you talk about Maestro and, and, and how, how Bradley Cooper portrayed, uh, Leonard Bernstein, um, which is, and I, I'm definitely going to go see this one because I love classical music, um, and Leonard Bernstein's contribution to it, um, in this, in this modern era is, is, uh, maybe not even measurable. But what was your impression of the film? I really enjoyed it. I would say don't go to this movie expecting a conventional biographical movie because it doesn't cover a whole lot of it doesn't cover Bernstein's whole life. It doesn't cover all the highlights of his career. It really is focused on his relationship with his wife, Felicia Montalegre, um, and it just kind of spotlights a few moments from their life, their lives together and the unusual relationship that they had. So if you want an overview of Bernstein, this is not that movie. But I, I did think it was a really moving um, film, and the, the, the way it portrayed this relationship, her contribution to everything that he did, um, the compromises that they made for each other, the difficulty of her for her of being in love with someone who was so famous and so charismatic. It was really interesting to me. Um, my my dad was actually a conductor, although not 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 on the level of Bernstein, but he was working in New York at around the same time. So I could really relate to this movie. Wow! So that's really interesting. Um, uh, we I, I, is he around to, to to be able to speak to him about it? <laughs> yeah, I um, next time I talk to him, I will definitely. I mean, he's, he's doesn't really get out to movies a lot, but so it'll probably be a while before he sees this one. But I would like to know what he thinks of it. It sounds like there was a great deal of, from based on a review I, I read, it sounds like there's a great deal of emotional strain between Bernstein and his wife that somehow works its way into the music. Am I right about that? Yeah, well, I don't know 
if they showed exactly how it works its way into the music specifically, but there, the music is sort of threaded throughout the movie. Um, and there is a scene where he is conducting for, I think it's, it's like six minutes straight or something, just one, one long shot. Bradley Cooper does an amazing job with that. And you can just see the passion that Bernstein has and that he puts into his conducting. Um, it's riveting. I, I heard that uh, he actually jumps. Yeah, he does, yeah. <laughs> wow. Um, we do have a uh, listener caller with a question. Uh, Wendy from Rochester, what is your question for Margot? Yeah, I was wondering if she had seen uh, Boys in the Boat. Uh, I saw it at the Majestic, and people were applauding like crazy at the end. I thought it was great. I was wondering if she had seen it and what she thought of it. I've not seen that one, I'm afraid. Um, yeah, I have heard about it. Um, I, I tend, I tend not to see sports movies so much just because it's not, not really my thing. Um, but, but it's, that's good to hear that people were responding so positively to it. That's, that's really interesting. It was a feel great movie. (laughs) Wendy, what did you, what, Wendy, uh, what was the best part of the movie that you thought? Um, just the, the Washington, University of Washington rowing team were sort of the underdogs. They sort of came from poverty and just how they stuck together. And at the very end, uh, this old man, he had been a rower, said, we weren't eight, we were one. So, um, yeah, it was just terrific. I really enjoyed it. Wendy, thank you so much for your call. Um, do, let me, but let me ask you this though: Did you think that um, the uh, the underdogs versus the perceived master race of Adolf Hitler? Uh, how much of a part of that was was in the movie? Um, it wasn't really that much a part of it. Um, it was in the background, and they showed Hitler and. Stuff, but I don't think it really made much difference. I see. Okay. Wendy, thank you for your opinion and your question. Uh, uh, have a wonderful day. Um, thank you for your call. Uh, we uh, now move on to a couple of other movies um, that you've seen. Um, uh, Margot, The Iron Claw. Um, this, uh, I believe, is about the Von Erich uh, wrestling family in Texas, and it sounds like it's a complicated web that has been weaved here for this film. Can you talk about that one? Yeah, well, I, I said that I didn't like sports movies, and that is true in general, but this is kind of an exception for me because um, this movie, well, this might be this might be more of a feel-bad movie, but it's really kind of an old-fashioned tearjerker. I mean, it's about this family that had a very tragic history. I'm sure that a lot of listeners know more about them than I did before I started watching this movie. Um, and actually, some changes were made for the movie. I think the, the family had um, five sons, and only four are depicted here. Um, and I think in real life, two of them died by or three of them died by suicide. It's just really, really, really sad. Wow. So it's uh, not exactly the feel-good movie of the year, and yet at the same time um, tells a story um, uh, almost like an American tragedy, it sounds like. Yeah. I mean, the way it's portrayed in the movie is that the the father of these sons, um, I mean, the whole family wrestles, 
And he is such a perfectionist. He's driving them so hard to excel and win that it just, it's such, so, it's so much pressure on them that it really affects them in negative ways. Um, and, uh, the father's, uh, overbearing influence in all of this, uh, might have been, um, a contributor to the suicides, it sort of sounds like. That is what the movie suggests. Um, yeah. yeah. I think wow. the surviving brother contradicts that. He says that wasn't true. Um, but that is definitely what, what we see in the movie. I see. I see. Okay. So maybe, uh, maybe Hollywood, uh, took a, a little, little bit of a liberty with the message. Maybe, but I think I, I've seen this. I've seen this elsewhere too. Um, I think this is kind of like it's not just the movie that is saying this, but who knows? I, I certainly don't know the truth. Okay. Um, 802-244-1777 and in just a couple of minutes that we have left uh, to ask a question of Margot Harrison of Seven Days about uh, uh, a movie that uh, perhaps you've seen. Um, we can talk a little bit more about the ones that she has seen. Um, you saw American Fiction, and that's pretty interesting because it's not here yet, or is it? No, it's not here yet. Um and that that is a really interesting sort of satirical movie um, about that has something to say about race relations in America and specifically in the world of books and publishing. It's about a black author who cannot like he writes these books that are just not successful. So he decides to take a new tactic and he writes a book in the voice of a um, like a, a criminal from the streets, from the hood, you know, and sort of puts on this voice that is not him at all. And he immediately gets huge success with it because all the white people kind of want to see this particular depiction in books. So huh. it's kind of like, you know, illusion versus reality. Yeah. Who's in it? Uh, Jeffrey Wright is the main character and um, the writer, and he is just like he's an amazing actor. So I hope he's going to get some awards recognition for this. Okay, we'll have to wait a year to find out, I guess. Um, oh no, this one's this one came out last. This this one is a 2023 movie, but it's not. But yeah, we'll have, we may not see it in Vermont for a week or so. Okay, well, we just have about 60 seconds left, but what was your impression of uh, Leave the World Behind? Oh, that one was not my favorite. It's getting a lot of conversation online, I think, but I thought it was boring. Boring. Wow. Yeah. Okay. I think a lot, of, a lot of people are talking about it because the Obamas produced it, but, yeah, I, I didn't think there was a whole lot to it, honestly. Oh, no kidding. And uh, Eileen, just very quickly, you thought... Plus, thumbs up, thumbs down? Thumbs up for that. That's like a dark little noir movie. Okay. All right. Well, that sounds um, interesting, and uh, there's a lot of dark stuff out there. We know that. Uh, Margot Harrison of Seven Days, thank you so much uh, for joining us today on, um, on Vermont Viewpoint. Thank you for having me. All right. Thank you, Margot. Uh, that is going to be it for uh, Vermont Viewpoint. This is Vermont Viewpoint on WDEV.